Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today we're going to talk about betting. We're talking about games that have the betting mechanism, and we're talking to Victoria Kanya and Alex Uboldi from Cat Quartet Games. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, so glad that you both could be here. Really excited to talk to y'all, talk to y'all about this. It's not a, a show that I've done in the past, and I'm, my goal is to hit every mechanism and just kind of go through Board Game Geek, the list of, of mechanisms. I want to talk about all of them at some point on the show, so I'm excited to get betting games on the show now. And, and you guys have got a game called Gladius you've been working on for a while. I remember two years ago when we first all met each other at Dice Tower Con, y'all were working on it then. And I know since then it's won some awards. It's got some, you know, really good reviews from people online talking about how much they've enjoyed playing the prototype and whatnot. Finally, it's coming to fruition, finally coming to Kickstarter. It has a really cool betting mechanism in it. Really excited to kind of hear how that game came to be in the design process and all that. But before we get in, into your game and other betting style games, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Victoria, why don't you go first? Yeah, sure. So my name is Victoria Kanya, and I'm a game producer at Wizards of the Coast. And uh, before that, I did a bunch of random stuff like management consulting and data analytics and tons of other stuff. And uh, I basically worked on Gladius with Alex in hopes that it would eventually be able to allow me to transition into games. And then it did. It worked out. So now I work here. Very cool. And then Alex, how'd you get into games design? Um, I've always been really into games. Like I think I designed my first board game when I was in the sixth grade for a class project. Uh, but we didn't seriously start doing it until about three years ago. We both kind of have been interested in being in the games industry for a long time and, and working to design and create games. So, uh, we decided to just give it a go and design a board game and really immerse ourselves in the industry, go to a bunch of cons, meet a bunch of wonderful people. And since then, uh, we've been designing board games and working together. Very cool. And so y'all are together, right, in a relationship. And so how did y'all mm-hmm. kind of start designing games together as a team? Like, did you, were you in relationship first or were y'all working on the game first? Like, tell me how that worked out. Yeah. So Alex and I have actually known each other for a long time. So we've known each other since high school. I think junior year, we went to different high schools and we were both state officers of different club organizations at school and there was a training camp in Lake Tahoe and so we met and became friends and Alex actually helped me with uh, my campaign to run for a national office for one of those clubs and we stayed friends for a long time until eventually in college we ended up dating and and now we're engaged so we were we were friends and in a relationship first and we both have always loved games and in New York City it's one of the it's like one of the um, budding hubs for games. We actually live near the NYU Game Center where they'd have a bunch of different events. And one of the events that I saw come up was um, there's a film festival called Tribeca Films, and they wanted to also have a festival dedicated to games. So it was called Tribeca Games. And there was an event uh, about the 
making of League of Legends. And I brought Alex to that. And we met one of their game designers in R&D, uh, Stone LeBrand. And he told us, hey, if you guys want to get in game design, you guys should just make a game with cards. I make a game for my kids every single year. And that's kind of um, how he got started and how he continues making games. And so that's what we try to do. Very cool. Now, before we get into the actual topic at hand, I'm curious because I know a lot of people that listen to this show are kind of in this situation where they would love for their significant other or their spouse to kind of be more involved with this hobby of game design and gaming and things like that. So Alex, what would be your advice to somebody if they if they really wanted to help get their significant other into, you know, not necessarily full on game design, but at least participating in some what in some way, what would be your advice? I think the most important thing is you shouldn't try to get your significant other to like the same games or games that you like. You should try to help your significant other discover games um, or gaming interests that they enjoy. So um, they might, might not like to sit down and play um, certain games that like you specifically enjoy, but maybe if they have an interest in, in role-playing, in lighter games, in heavier games, um, it maybe it was a theme they really enjoy, um, look for those kinds of things because I think uh, too many people try to be like, oh, I really like this game and I'm a big fan of it. You should also really like it. And I think that turns a lot of people off because they feel like, oh, I'm not enjoying it as much as you. Like, you really like it, but like, I'm just kind of here because you like it. So, but if you can find something within the games that they appreciate and they can really latch onto and enjoy for themselves, I think that's the start of starting uh, basically a dialogue to try and get more people who might not be into games into games yeah that's really really good advice some of the best marriage advice i ever got was okay you can only change one person in this world and that's you and so don't try to change other people don't try to change your spouse because it's never going to work but you can change yourself and so what does it look like to change yourself into becoming the spouse that you would want to be or want to have. Does that make sense? Uh, or become the friend that you would like to have because when you change yourself, a lot of times people around you change as well. And so one thing I've, I've had success with as far as game design and my wife being involved and, you know, she's great about playtesting and helping me with different things is I try to design games that she likes. I try to design, you know, things that she would be interested in. And then sometimes she'll even say, well, hey, what if we did it this way? And it's something that maybe I wouldn't have thought of, but it's kind of from her angle, her perspective. It's like, yeah, let's let's try that. Let's give that a shot. Let's try that game idea or, or the way to change this game in that way. And so I think, I think you bring up a good point. Be flexible. Don't try to put people in your box. You know, try to think about well, what does it look like to get out of my box and get into their box and, and, and kind of go go from that way. Victoria, would you, would you uh, echo the same ideas or do you have anything that kind of add on, on those things? Oh yeah, I definitely agree. Like for example, when Alex and I were first dating, I had to play a lot of games that he liked and he had to play a lot of games that I liked. So for example, he mostly liked, uh, you know, heavy strategy games. And I was mostly interested in like, oh, look at these peaceful, cozy games and heavy economic games. <laughs> so uh, that's definitely a part of it. And I think that uh, when it comes to your significant other or just any any friend or person that you know that you would like to get into games. It's really all about being very welcoming and accommodating and showing them that you understand, hey, even if you're new, it's okay that you don't understand. I will help you understand this game and get better at it because I think that's one of the things that scares people off the most is that like when I'm demoing games and there is a group of friends um, and they're more experienced friends Sometimes like one person will sit out because they don't want to slow the other people down or they don't want to be embarrassed because they, you know, don't really know what to do. Just, you know, showing patience and enthusiasm really goes a long way to helping people become more interested in games. 
Yeah, for sure. I completely agree. Very cool. Let's get into the topic at hand. Let's talk about betting games. And before we really get into it, what what is that? What is a good little working definition? Alex, what do you think? When somebody says betting games, what does that mean to you? Uh, we were actually thinking a lot about this, like what is like the foundation of a betting game? And to us, we broke it down into three common factors that we saw mainly in board game based betting games. Like, uh, there's like betting games, which are based in like casino games. And mainly the qualifier for that is like, there's money involved. You're spending money and now it's a betting game. Um, but for us, like betting board games had three common factors. The first one was unknown information that's either randomly generated or player generated. So in poker, it would be like uh, the flop, right? In Texas Hold'em, the three cards that come out that nobody knows, but everybody has to care about um, and the cards of the other players. The second element was a central event that players are placing bets on. Um, it kind of creates a degree of separation between the players and the event um, to have this event. They do not directly participate in it. So if you are playing the football game, you're not betting on the football game. But if you're betting on the football game, then you are a spectator betting. And then uh, the, the third thing is that there are multiple rounds of betting. So it's not just you place one bet and that's it. Um, it's like, oh, you can continue to bet as the game progresses in order to create a dynamic and flexible uh, evolving strategy throughout the game. So unknown information, a central event, and multiple rounds of betting are kind of what we boiled down betting games into um, as a difference from just like sports betting or uh, an activity like that. Yeah, I think that's a really cool way uh, to look at those. Let's, let's start breaking those down maybe a little bit further as far as game design and design process. Uh, let's kind of start with, I'll start off with the first one, unknown information. Uh, Victoria, how do you, how do you kind of bring that into the game design realm? How do you make that, like, like you're saying with, with poker, I mean, that's, it's the central, <laughs> it's one of the main mm-hmm. things Like you don't know what the other people have at the table, but there's lots of board games where, you know, there, there's lots of known information unknown. And so how do you kind of uh, bring that to a board game space as far as unknown information. Yeah. So the thing with unknown information is that there's always this tension between how much do you reveal and how much do you hide? And so when we were designing Gladius, we we were like constantly walking the line between those two things. So, uh, so the known information in Gladius is you have different gl- uh, gladiators that are competing against each other. You have the event. It tells you what the stats Uh, you're judged on are and you know what stats each of the gladiators have and so usually like when you show players you tell them hey you're betting on these different gladiators they think wow that's so easy because I know who's going to win right now and then the next thing that I tell them is okay but you all have these secret player powers and you have this deck of influence cards and what's going to happen is you're going to play a bunch of cards some face down some face up to alter the outcome of the event so you're basically rigging the event and then they realize oh shoot there's a lot that I don't know like in Gladys they have some agency but there's still like a lot of chaos going on there and so um in order to bring hidden information to the game, you have to make sure that there is enough information that players are able to deduce what is going on so that way they can make decisions. Perhaps they can calculate probability, but there has to be a lot of luck involved. There has to be a lot of mystery in order for it to be exciting, in order for it to truly be a, a betting game. Yeah, definitely. Now, how do you balance out you know, having that unknown information, but also not having so much chaos that players kind of check out. Cause I can see if you had a card in there, for instance, that said, you know, this card eliminates all the other cards. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, well, well what's, <laughs> what was the point of me playing any of these other cards? So how do you, how have y'all kind of figured out how to balance the, the in the hidden information from the known information so that people can make 
you know, choices. And there is, there's still chaos. There's still luck and random things happening, but you can still make a pretty decent guess so that you can feel like you're making, you know, clever decisions. Mm -hmm. For us, it's like, we've done a lot of empirical research related to this. Like, I wish that there was some sort of formula, like if you do 50% or 60%, then this is the correct amount of hidden information. Uh, but it's really about, um, just creating a prototype and testing with a group of people and seeing how engaged they are and if they're able to make uh, decisions that seem somewhat strategic but still rely on luck. So, uh, like, for example, in Gladius, and Alex, I'm sure you remember this, uh, one time we tried taking away all of the information. We we made... Um, I think we, was it, did we put all the gladiators face down or did we have everybody place bets secretly? Like you had no idea where they were betting. Yeah. All the bets were, all the bets were hidden. Like you didn't know which team you were betting on. You didn't know which bets people were placing. Oh yes. So we did a bunch of tests because uh, like if you're working on a game, there are different things that signify different information. So for example, one of the things is often, oh, if you place a bet, sometimes you know directionally where that bet is, or you know how many bets somebody has placed, or perhaps there's an amount that that person bet. Uh, on top of that, there might be actions that a player can take, right? Like to affect a particular character that is acting in the game. And when you take all of those away, people can't make decisions. It's it's just like pure randomness. And the pure randomness of it all is not fun. It makes people feel like their decision is meaningless, essentially. And uh, I really think it's all about just figuring out what are the different ways that you're communicating intentions of different players, communicating what is going on in the game, and then also like the criteria for winning, and then testing out those levers to see how much you can hide versus how much you can reveal. Yeah, like you said, there's no magical algorithm to really plug the game into. It's a lot of just trial and error and, and playtesting and kind of seeing what works and what what maybe gets a little bit too chaotic, what gets a little bit too, mm -hmm. you know, not enough chaotic, I guess. And so, all right, Alex, let's move to the second thing. Having a central event, what does that mean exactly for a board game, you know, for a betting game? How do you how do you have a central event that players are really concerned about? So for us, um, this was kind of very helpful because uh we really enjoy like take that games but i know a lot of people can be turned off by take that games because they don't want to hurt their friends or they don't want to play cards that like directly attack opponents um by having a central event you in a way circumvent this kind of issue where um i'm not attacking you i'm attacking this gladiator that you may or may not have a bet on right um so it creates a degree of separation that allows everyone to work from some central pool that everyone influences, but not necessarily directly participates in. So like in Camel Up, you are not a camel racing in the race. Um, you are betting on the camels racing in the race. So you find yourself in this interesting position where you're rooting uh, for something that's not yourself to succeed. And it creates these interesting alliances and rivalries where on one round, you you and uh, uh, another player might be rooting for the same camel to win or the same gladiator to be victorious. And then the very next round, now you are arch enemies, you're on different teams and you're, you're rooting for different gladiators to win, right? So um, I think the central event is very important because as the unknown information becomes revealed or unfolds in the central event, 
it creates an interesting dynamic among the players as to how it impacts them. Some players do better, some players do worse. And I think that's a big part of betting games, the unfolding of events that lead to different ranges of emotions depending on what kind of stake players have in those events. Yeah, and it's one of my favorite things about betting games is when I don't have a specific player or car or whatever that I that I am, I am just betting on who I think is going to win. And so I don't feel like, you know, I don't feel like I lose. You know, it's it's really, you know, the, the cards are out there or whatever. I'm thinking about downforce. It's one of my favorite games and like I I'm kind of betting for for different things to happen and even if i have a car and i'm like well i don't i don't think i'm gonna win i can bet on other people to win and so i can still win even if i my car doesn't win i think that's just a cool way to do it but let's let's talk about rounds because like downforce has multiple rounds of kind of betting on who who wins that's a cool way to do it there's lots of games that that do so how did y'all handle rounds have you seen other games handle rounds that you you thought were really cool as far as you know for a betting mechanism style game uh victoria what what do you got Oh, yeah. So I think that the reason why multiple rounds is important is because, first of all, it allows the game to evolve organically over time. And it also allows people, uh, it allows players to strategically react to changes that happen from round to round. So for example, uh, in a betting game, like wits and wagers, I can't remember how many rounds there are. But they're, they're usually multiple. Let's just say that there are five of them. So if you think that you're not going to do so hot in one particular round, you you still feel engaged because you know, okay, maybe this time isn't my round, but in the future, it could be my round. And so that addiction to knowing, hey, maybe I can find my opportunity and win big here because most of the time, most of the time, betting games are really swingy. Uh, that's like really important and central to the game. Uh, on top of that, it's also really fun because... Usually each round presents a different set of information, right? Like you have new players, you have new criteria, people have new cards, new abilities, new ways to uh, interact with the betting. And so each time it's like a, it's a puzzle and it's a game of risk management, of figuring out, hey, these are the resources that I have, whether it's like betting tokens or a certain amount of money and figuring out over the course of X number of rounds, how am I going to use this to try to convert this to the most amount of money possible? And it's just not as fun to do that if you only have one round uh, where somebody wins big and that's it. Definitely. This is one of the things I think people love about poker so much is that the betting is its own mini game in and of itself. It's not even about what cards you have or what cards, if you're playing Texas Hold'em, what cards are out in the flop or in the river or whatever. It's about playing the other players and it's about, you know, making mm-hmm. little decisions and making bets. And it also depends on where you're sitting at the table and like who gets to, you know, start off the bets and things like that. There's so much psychology. There's so many things that go into this, you know, each round of betting. It's it's its own game in and of itself. And I think if you're if you're making a betting game and you can find a way to make the the actual rounds of betting its own kind of thing where it's it's you know it's not just part of the game it's like its own game in and of itself that's just a really cool way to way to do things and so yeah mm-hmm. let's let's keep talking about more uh, examples I tell you what let's do this first though why in the world do people love these games I mean poker you could argue is the most popular game in the world I think it's like soccer and poker that <laughs> everywhere you go around the world people play you know these games and so Alex start off with you why do you think people are so attracted to these kinds of games. Oh, I think people just love the thrill of it, the thrill of putting something at risk and seeing it pay off or fail. I mean, that's kind of the core idea behind betting. It's you are putting this at you are you are taking you're doing risk management, right? You have you're betting this much money and you're hoping it's going to pay out 
uh, over the long term. But unlike something like an investment or a job, uh, betting is like immediate, right? You win or you lose, you double your money or you lose it all. And I think that sort of adrenaline rush is what draws a lot of people to gambling and betting in general. Uh, I know a lot of different games have things like betting that aren't necessarily betting games. Like in a worker placement game, it's like a thrill if you get the the great spot and that spot pays out big for you. Um, and then everyone, no one else can make that same bet, right? Um, that that spot will do well. So I think it's a it's a core fundamental idea in humans where they really like the idea of risking it all and winning big, or the idea of risking it all, winning big, but not physically actually risking it all in like a real money space, but in a fun gaming space where it's less life or death you know uh monetarily speaking yeah for sure and there's there's something about the way these chemicals react in our brain you know that excitement that dopamine rush you know when you're at if you're in vegas and you're playing craps or you're playing the roulette wheel or whatever you're doing and you put your money down and you got that little heart you know your heart's racing to a certain degree you're watching that ball spin around or you're watching the dice be rolled it's just a fun kind of moment and and if, if you win hey that's huge and you get that big spike of dopamine and if you don't well there's always next time and so it kind of brings people exactly. back to the table so but why create one of these uh, victoria what in the world made you want to design a bluffing game i mean there's all sorts of games that you could have made could have made worker placement you could have made all sorts of stuff so what what drew you to this style of game uh, yourselves so what's interesting about betting is that at a mainstream level, it's it's very popular, right? Like Las Vegas exists, betting on horses exists. People love, you know, the lottery. People love doing, uh, people love gambling. But what's interesting is that we found that oftentimes people who are uh, hobbyists in the board game industry get turned off by the idea of gambling or by the idea of betting. And uh, I think part of it is because, well. First of all, games like like most betting games like poker are not always accessible. And I think there's also uh, like a fear around betting games where it's like, I don't know how to win necessarily. It's out of my control. I could also lose. So it's like on one hand, there's the possibility that you could win. And then there are also people who are like, "Uh oh, but also I could lose a lot. And part of why we decided to make Gladius is because uh, Alex really likes poker. I also really like betting games. Uh, but the thing is, is that in betting games are not really accessible. Like we haven't seen a whole bunch of games that have brought the mechanic to the board game space. And what we wanted to do is create a game that leverages the fun of betting, but also uh, makes it more accessible. So for example, in Gladius, as opposed to poker, where there are so many different decisions that you could make, you could wager any amount of money, um, you know, except you're limited by the amount of money that you have. Uh, you could play a bunch of different hands. You could make a bunch of different decisions. We wanted to streamline it. So you start out with seven different tokens you have uh, that have different numbers on them. And essentially, they fall into a few different categories. You have like uh, a big number. You have like a medium number. You have a small number. And those are to place bets on gladiator teams to win. And then you also have a death bet. And the death bet is uh, a bet to place on a team that you think will lose. And so dropping those into fewer categories makes it easier for players to decide how they want to approach betting and then move on to the more exciting part of the game, which is actually a game about uh, bluffing and deduction and using influence cards and your special, plow uh, special power to rig the outcome of the games. So what we, what we were essentially interested in doing was using betting as a way to facilitate uh, another part of the game that we think is the the more exciting part of it. 
Nice. And so Alex, you know, first of all, who, whose design idea was this originally? Like, did, did one of you have the initial concept in mind? Uh, we kind of converged on it together. Like we were both working on things and like I was working on like a gladiator game where you were uh, training gladiators to fight in the Coliseum. And then we were both kind of tinkering with like a betting game similar to like Council of Verona, but with more depth. Um, and it was became really fun just to bet on the gladiators instead of like fight as the gladiators and just like cheer for them and when we saw people play this initial like concept we we're like oh this is something kind of special here like this is this is a cool idea that i think not a lot of people have been exposed to yet and it's and we found it to be really fun because we could play it with our friends who really like poker and like gambling and like maybe hardcore card games and people who had never played board games before they would like come in and still be able to bet and rig with the best of them so uh, we thought that was like something really special when we were initializing the concept for the game and that's generally what we decided to go forward with gotcha and i like how it's different from the norm because there's lots of gladiator games out there that are you know you move your little guy on the hex map and then i'm gonna roll some dice i'm gonna do some damage to you you do some damage to me one of us is eventually gonna win and the other will lose there's lots of those kinds of games i don't know of any games or maybe they're out there where you're like actively betting and, and you've got your your people and you're betting on this and that and like your, your game seems like it takes a theme that's been done quite a bit, but looks at it from a totally different angle, totally different perspective, and stands out. And I think that's one of the cool things about it, and it's probably why it's won some awards, and that's why I think you're going to do really well uh, on Kickstarter, because it, it's taking an idea that people know about, but then looking at it, uh, kind of turning it on its head and, and doing something different. And so let's talk about some other examples of betting-style games, some games that y'all enjoy, maybe games that you pulled inspiration from. Victoria, you know, you gave me a, a cool little list before we started recording. Let's just start going down some of these. You already mentioned Wits and Wagers. Let's go. Uh, tell me about Colossal Arena. This is one I had not heard about. I don't know much about it. So tell me about it and what you enjoy, maybe some things about it that uh, inspire you. Yeah, so Colossal Arena is a game by Fantasy Flight Games where you're essentially betting on a bunch of mythical creatures who are competing in a colossal arena. And so uh, so the game is interesting because... Uh, so there are like a variety of times that you could place bets. So I believe that you place a secret long-term bet at the beginning of the game. And then the game starts out where there are a bunch of mythical creatures that are played on the board. And then Alex, maybe you remember more what happens after that. So basically uh, how the game works is it pays off bets based on who bet on a uh, certain character earlier. So like the earlier you place a bet, the more payout you'll get for that character. And how it works is all the competitors are in the arena at the start. And then each round players will play a card on them to kind of change uh, their power or uh, from zero to nine. And they each have an ability. So whenever you play a card there, it activates their ability. But long story short, at the end of each round, one gladiator or um, competitor will be eliminated and it'll slowly whittle down until there's one winner left. Um, so if you happen to place a bet very early on for that winner, you're going to get paid out a lot of money. So it uses this um, early early bet kind of mechanic to uh, pay out its its players. Very cool. And that's also going back to Downforce, very similar. You know, you have different moments you can bet. And the earlier you bet on the winner, the more money you make. But at the same time, you can switch mid-game and still get some money if, if things didn't turn out as well as you had hoped for a certain car or, or whatever. Uh, let's talk about Council, Council of Verona. Which one of y'all enjoy that game more? And then tell me about that one. Oh, yeah. So Council of Verona is one of my favorite small games. It is a game about uh, betting on the Romeo and Juliet story from Shakespeare. So... 
basically uh every characters either have agendas or powers um like for example romeo's agenda is to wind up in the same place as juliet um the mercutio's uh, agenda is to have the more no uh what's his name uh cap the capulet guy uh his agenda is to have the more capulets on the council than um the other factions so basically you're drafting these cards you're playing them down and then you're placing secret bets on them um and the thing about that game that we really like is that um they have a zero bet um and that's just a bet token with a zero on it that you can place down to kind of deceive people into thinking that you're committed to a bet but not actually and we really like that mechanic in that game that you could just kind of have to figure out that everyone where they're betting is kind of probably a real bet because you have more real bets in secret than the zero bets you only have the one zero but the existence of the zero really turns the game on its head because at any time that bet that you think they're for sure there they might just have a zero to deceive you um so we really liked uh how quickly it played how easy it was to teach and set up um and uh, a lot of the different betting factors the betting decision design decisions that they made yeah, for sure. I love the idea of having the zero token, right? I've seen that happen in, in or show up in several different games and it just creates a little bit of doubt. Like you, you're never fully sure. Again, going back to hidden information, you never fully know what somebody else is doing and you have to make some some educated guesses on, on what they're betting, who they're betting for, what they're doing, what their strategy is. And again, it creates a little bit of chaos, but it's good chaos. It's good tension. All right, what about Venture Angels? This is a, a game I'd never heard about. It's a game from Korea. And so y'all tell me about that one. Yeah. So Venture Angels is a game, like you said, from Korea that we discovered from our friend Eric Yurko, who uh, runs a, a review website. And what's this game is super awesome. And I remember we paid like $40 for this tiny game. <laughs> but uh, it was so cool because it's it's actually what inspired us to redesign the the betting system in Gladius. And so in Venture Angels, you're, you're essentially a venture capitalist. And there are a bunch of different... Uh, there are a bunch of different ventures that come out that have different uh, values where if you win them, that's the amount of points that they're worth. And you have a bunch of betting tokens that have different amounts ranging from like zero up to higher numbers. And what you do is players uh, secretly place those tokens on the different uh, businesses that they are investing in. And so what you're trying to do is you are trying to win by having the most investment on a particular company, but the company that has the most number, uh, like total number when they're added together of tokens placed on it, that one busts and that one is out of the game and does not actually fund. And so it's a, it's a ton of fun because you're trying to figure out, hey, where can I strategically place these tokens which are essentially bet tokens um, where you think that they're going to pay out the most, but also try to avoid betting on the company that is not going to pay out at the end. And then on top of that, you're also trying to trick your opponents because you have a token that is a zero, which makes it a lot of fun. Gotcha. Now, is that a game people can find in the States or not? Uh, hmm. We bought it on like a website that was not yeah. from here. So. <laughs> okay. No worries. Just curious. It might, it might come. I hope it comes available in the near future. Yeah, I hope so. But I think that this that game has like a ton of really cool innovations. Like one of the comeback mechanics in that game is uh, if you are behind uh, or if you're ahead, if you manage to successfully fund something, you have to place one of your tokens face up for each project that you funded. So now the player who's ahead has less hidden information, but it gives all the players who are behind more revealed information. It helps them make better 
uh, value judgments. And I think that's a super cool comeback mechanic. It's also one of the only games that I know where by betting, you are also actively uh, influencing the the event as we discussed, um, which I think is a very cool synergy where it's like you are doing two actions at once. Action one is betting. Action two is also influencing the outcome of what you're betting on, which I think is a, a really neat take on the betting game. Awesome. All right, let's go to Camel Up. This is a game that's a, a classic. You know, people, a lot of people have played this one. Tell me more about it, how the betting works, what inspired you about that one? So when we were first designing Gladius uh, and we were looking for more betting games, of course, this is this is the one that people kept saying, this, you know, your game reminds me of Camel Up, but that's not true. We're not, our game is actually not like Camel Up. What they really mean is, oh, your game has betting, Camel Up has betting, and there are not that many games that have betting. <laughs> this is like Monopoly because it has cards. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> And so in Camel Up, you're basically playing, uh, you know, somebody who's out in the desert who is spectating a bunch of camels who are racing and you try to make you're trying to make the most money by uh, by placing bets. And I think that Camel Up is really fun because I actually replayed it over the weekend and I was like, what? I have no agency really in this. I'm just watching camels. Uh, it, it's actually it's it's a lot of fun because uh, things can change at any moment, uh, you know, like you place your, like on your turn, you have the option to take one of those tokens to bet on a particular camel. And the sooner you bet on somebody to win or for somebody to lose, you obviously have a higher payout. But then on top of that, uh, like for example, if you place one of the long-term bets to, uh, have a camel either win or lose, you also have to assess the risk that you have to lose money if that bet is wrong. Uh, so there, like, I feel like there's constant tension in that game of, shoot, I need to bet first. But if I bet first, I could be wrong. And then on top of that, I'm going to have to pay money for that wrong decision. Um, and then on top of that, you don't know what's going to happen with the camels because they the camels get stacked and carry each other onward. And the camel that's on the top is the one that's in first place. And then um, I think like the the one cool part that you can really hold on to in Camel Up is that you know that there's only one die for each camel in the pyramid that allows the camel to move. And so what I observed when I was replaying it over the weekend is that people like really cling to that information. They're like, yes, I need to know this in order for the game to work. Otherwise, I feel like it was completely random. Yeah, and I think that brings up an interesting point about a lot of betting games that they kind of share something in common, especially the, the simpler ones, is that they are pretty accessible uh, in that you can go as deep with the, the processing and the probability and different odds as you want, or you can just stay on the surface and you can be an eight-year-old kid and think, I want to bet on the blue one because I like blue. And you could still potentially win, which makes you know them great family games a lot of times. I know Camel Up, you know, a lot of families play that. I've seen uh, tournaments at conventions of Camel Up and, you know, a nine-year-old won the whole thing. And he wasn't sitting there thinking about all the different odds and the, the percentages and all these different things. He was just like, I, I think this one looks cool to me. Let's go with this one. And he ends up winning. And so I think that's a really cool, cool thing about these kinds of games is that it has a big spectrum of who can play. You don't necessarily have to be, you know, if you're going to play a game like Scythe, it helps to have played Scythe many, many times to understand all the nuances and rules and, and complicated things that are going on. You know, you're, if you're playing your first time, you're not likely to win. But with these betting games, you because of the luck, because of the chaotic nature of some things, and just because they're kind of you know fun more than like deep a lot of times, they, they kind of slant towards hey, we want people just to have a lot of fun, you know, rolling the dice and seeing what happens. That excitement like we were talking about before with the whole dopamine thing like that, it makes it really really accessible. And so, have you found that to be the case with Gladius, where it's it's got some cool things going on, 
But at the end of the day, you know, a younger person or a newer gamer could still play it and have a lot of fun at the same table with more seasoned gamers. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the best parts of Gladius is that uh, you could play with anybody and anybody really could win. Anybody could have like a reasonable chance of getting lucky and playing their cards right and being in the right spot at the right time in order to win big. Uh, But at the same time, if you're somebody who's played the game over and over and over, or you're just like an experienced gamer or somebody who uh, calculates things in the back of their head, then you can increase your chances of winning, but you can't win purely on your skill. And I think that that's what makes Gladius replayable. Like we played this game over a thousand times, like literally over a thousand times. And um, I can see how with some other games, it could get boring because you find the strategy that wins every single time. But in Gladius, it changes each time because you really don't know how everybody's going to play. You don't know what bets they're going to play. You don't know what cards they're going to play. And you don't know uh, if you're definitely going to win because you're playing with a bunch of other people who add a bunch of variables to the game. And that makes it very, very exciting. And then on top of that, I think the other thing that makes for uh, like a really good betting game is this feeling that you could win at any time, even um, even as like somebody may be getting ahead in the game. So one of the early problems that we had in Gladius was uh, we had a different betting system. And then on top of that, you could also see who was in the lead. Like people used to have coins uh, before we moved to the the new betting system that was inspired by Venture Angels. And uh, so sometimes people would tune out. They'd be like, oh, well, I see that so-and-so has a pile of money. I can calculate that by round three, there's no way that I could win. So I'm just going to check out. And that like leads to king making problems. And then on top of that, when we tried to make, you know, the last round worth more or like each round you would get uh, more and more money for winning, it made people not care about the first round and only care about the third round. And so the solution that really worked for us was when we switched to the Venture Angel system where you have these betting tokens, you have a limited number, you only have seven of them, they're placed face down. And then on top of that, players never get to see, uh, never get to see them until the end of the game. So, for example, if a team wins uh, first place and another team wins third place, they go on the first place and the third place podium and they stay there until the end of the game. So that's so it um, it makes it so that there is constant tension and, and anticipation through the game and you can really be surprised at the end of the game uh i've tried to track it i've tried to think like oh i think this person is definitely winning and i realized shoot i am not right that often which means that uh that i think that it's working that it is exciting very cool another game i want to bring up have either of y'all played spate i don't maybe you mean just like okay. the card game yeah, the card game, Spades. So this is an old old school classic. You just need a you know standard 52-card deck. Uh, but it is a game I grew up playing. A lot of my friends, a lot of people from the Deep South, this is a, a very common game that we play. And what I love about it is it's team-based, so it's two-on-two. Two, and it's just a normal card game where, where Spades are Trump. You know, it's very, very simple in its nature. But the cool thing about it is before you play a hand, so you, you deal out all the cards, and the one team will have to bet on how many hands they think they're going to win. And, they, and and you can't talk. You can't say, well, I've got the ace and you've got the king. Like you can't talk on anything specific. All you can say is, I think I can win three hands. And the other person says, well, I think I can win four. And so let's go for seven or let's go for eight. Let's see if we can find a way to win eight. And you're, you're betting ahead of time of how many books, how many hands you're going to win. And so then it becomes, once you start playing, your, your goal as that team is to win that many. 
And it becomes the other team's job or they're, what they're trying to do is make sure you don't win that many because you only get positive points if, you, if you're correct. You get negative points if you're incorrect. And so usually you're playing to an end goal. Like Let's say we're going to play to 300 points or something like that. And so it's this really cool tension before anything even starts. And you're having to assess, okay, I've got the king of this. I've got the jack of this. And so you're right, really trying to think through, okay, how many should we go for? Because, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to say too many, but at the same time, you don't want to say too few because you're trying to get as many points as possible. And so it's this really cool, going back to the whole idea of multiple rounds of betting, you know, because every hand is going to be in a new round of betting and different things like that. It's just really fun and intense. Uh, and there are some people that are just amazing spades players. I had some really good friends, especially their parents, who were just phenomenal at the game. And it was, it was just a whole lot of fun. I think that's an old school classic that uh, new designers could go into and say, okay, how can we take the spades mechanism and then turn that into maybe a little bit deeper of a game, a little bit more complex and more complicated, actually put a theme onto it or something like that. And so I think that's what's cool about betting games. They've been around forever. And so what does it look like to take one that, that is an old classic and then kind of modernize it, bring it into you know 2020 uh, going into uh, the future. Are there any other games for y'all, either of you, that stand out as something you're like, oh, this is a really cool one? Or, or if somebody's you know wanting to design a betting game, you're like, oh, you need to play this one or that one or anything like that? I think, I know we mentioned it earlier, but I think Wits and Wagers is really just like a perfect betting game. It's also a perfect trivia game. We just really like Wits and Wagers. But basically, like in Wits and Wagers, the brilliant thing about it is it uh, creates a spread for you. And uh, a lot of betting games try to emulate this and and do it differently. So like Camel Up and Colossal Arena uh, have the, the earlier you bet, the higher you get paid out. Um, Wits and Wagers does the spread, which basically means like everyone writes an answer to the trivia question and they're always numerically based and they get laid out from smallest to highest with the center average being in the middle. And if you bet on the center average, you get a one-to-one payout. But the further along the average you bet, like if you bet on the highest number, or the lowest number, you get a much larger payout. Um, so it very organically pays you out for taking more risk, which I think is a very cool system and I'd like to see more games uh, try to employ uh that would be my suggestion yeah and i think that uh one of the we have wits and wagers the vegas edition which i think was like a limited kickstarter edition but i really wish that they would make it more widely available because it's it's way better than the base game uh essentially you have a new betting table where in addition to just betting on oh which trivia answer do i think is the correct one um you can make a bet on who you think wrote down the right answer and it pays out 10 to 1. And then on top of that, if you don't want to bet directly on um, you know, like one person's answer that they put in, you could also uh bet for the left side or the right side for a lower payout or you could say I think it's even smaller than the number that somebody wrote down which has a 6 to 1 payout. And so I think that's a lot a lot of fun to to have these different odds and allow people these different decisions to figure out like where they want to place their bet because some people are more risk averse and some people want to be like super risky uh and i've noticed that that vegas wits and wagers accommodates that and then the other cool thing about wits and wagers is that it solves the problem of trivia games which is like if you ask questions and like nobody knows what the topic is the trivia game is not as fun or it's not as fair uh in wits and wagers it doesn't even matter you don't have to know anything about the trivia question that they ask right like they could say how many feet uh 
Like what's the length of a football field in feet? You don't have to have any idea. You could just well. put in, well, <laughs> yeah. well. like what's the height of the Hoover Dam in feet, right? Yeah. Like that's mm-hmm. something that not a lot of people would know. Yeah. So like most of the time they'll ask things people, people don't know. And you can either just like write down a random number and you could be right or you could be wrong, but it also doesn't matter because what you write down is not what you bet on. You just get bonus points if what you wrote down is the closest to the answer. Yeah, very cool. For anyone trying to figure it out, it's 360 feet and it's 4,320 inches. Just for anyone who is curious on the number of feet or inches in a football field, I know that because I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> I thought you Googled it. I was like, did he Google it? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, 4320 was like this old school. When I was in high school and in college, you know, football was my life and that, for better and for worse. And so there's little things that you, you do when you're an athlete, you, you like to psych yourself up. And so like, I remember one of the things I came up with was, you know, there's 4,320 inches on a football field. And that's, that's measuring both end zones too. That's not just a hundred yards. Like people, they say, oh, football field's 100 yards. So it's like, well, no, because the end zone is there, and it's pretty important for the game. And so that's the full field. Mm-hmm. It's 4,320 inches, and all of them are mine. Was my, well, I remember just coming up with that idea. It's so silly to think about it now looking back. But anyway, it was motivational yeah. at the time. But uh, what I love about Woods and Wagers, like you're saying, you know, you could be really dumb. And if it's a normal trivia game, you're not going to win. But in Wits and Wagers, you can be really dumb. But at the same time, you could find a way to feel really smart because you're betting yeah. on other things with that Vegas version. It's like, okay, yeah. I uh, maybe it's even just a certain category. Like if you ask me about cars or something like that, I was like, I am dumb. I have no idea about cars. I do not know anything about it. But I know that Steve over there, he knows a lot about cars. And so I don't know the answer to this, but I think Steve does. And so I can feel smart because I'm going to bet on Steve. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a cool, cool way to do it. Yeah. And then on top of that, so like I said, I was a management consultant before. And one of my favorite games of wits and wagers that I ever played was, um, so management consultants have to do this thing called case studies where you basically solve problems uh, and you have to, you have like a different approach or like you have a specific approach to solve problems. And so it's so fun playing with them where the question is like, how many ounces of blue goo do you think that Blue Man Group uses in a year? Like Blue Man Group is a performance group in Las Vegas where they're covered in blue paint and stuff. And so um, like straight up in a game that we played, people would be like, if we can assume that one cup has X ounces of blue goo and we multiply that to cover the surface area of their bodies and multiply that by a year, this is the answer. And it's funny because like, Sometimes it really does work. It gets them in the right direction to get a, a ballpark number for it. Yeah, very cool. Also, I, I forgot to mention football fields are also 53 and a third yards wide, also 160 feet. So if anyone was curious about the width of the field, there, there that is as well. Um, again, random knowledge that will probably never help me in the real world, but at least I knew it back in the day. You'll crush that wits and wagers question. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Length of football fields is my, that's my category. And so whenever that comes up, oh man. It's, it's funny, some of the, the trivia questions that end up in those things. It's And, and so we have Knowledge Bowl here at the, the, the high school where I teach. And I, sometimes they, they have like little practice sessions in my classroom during lunch. And I'll be sitting in there just like grading papers or whatever. And I'll hear the person asking these questions, to these kids. And it's like, if a bag of hammers weighs 47 pounds, I was like, who, who came up with like all these random math questions? A bag of hammers was the other day, other day a question. Like, who came up with a bag anyway? So it's kind of funny to think about. All right, let's, uh, let's switch gears just a little bit. We've already talked about some of the challenges you ran into with Gladius. Tell me about some more. Tell me about some other things you ran into during the design process, the playtesting process, development process, maybe things that you really hoped would work or didn't, or things you had to cut out. Uh, Alex, give me some more things that maybe you ran into, walls you ran into, you had to figure out a way to go around or go underneath or just power through or just go the different direction. 
Oh, yeah. So we encountered a lot and learned a lot in the, the process of making this game. Uh, one thing that we learned that I think is very applicable to betting games in as a whole is expectation versus subversion of expectation. So um, in order for players to feel smart and clever about how they bet, um, there has to be some expectation to subvert. Um, so one thing we tried in the game initially was like you would play cards that affected the gladiator stats um, and then you would place bets uh, either in the middle or at the end. Um, and the problem with this was um, when you ask a player brand new to the game with a hand of six cards in their hand to just like play a card on a gladiator, they're going to be very unsure of what to do. Um, like they're not they don't know like what why am I doing this? What is the purpose of this? Right. Um, but then we realize a core part of Gladius's gameplay is to have a bet at the start. Because when you have a bet at the start, that sets the expectation. Even if it could be a death bet, it uh, might not be. And that sets the expectation that because you bet there and you play a card there, that's probably a good card um, that you are playing on that gladiator to make your bet win. But then as the other player, you could subvert that by playing a death bet and playing a bad, bad card on that same team. So... The subversion of expectation is very important to any betting and bluffing game, and you always have to start rounds by setting an expectation. Um, and I, we think that's very important. The second thing that we ran through um, was how do you stop players from all betting on the same team, right? In the real world, you can uh, do that with like lower payouts, different odds, but in this simplified version of betting that we present in Gladius, um, how do you stop players from betting on the same team? Um, Camel Up and Colossal Arena have great solutions, right? The earlier you bet, the more money you get paid out, right? There's the, You can do different things with payouts. But what we found was we tried doing that. Um, we had a system where when one player bet on a team, then turn order becomes a problem because it's like if one player bets on a team and everyone wants to bet on the team, then the last player is going to get left out, right? Um, so it's like, okay, turn order is a problem. How do we fix this? Um, well, then we came up with an idea of payout tables, right? The more people betting on one team, the less money that team would pay out, um, which really organically worked to get players to diversify because if you won by yourself with no other players betting on that team with you, you would get a pretty large payout. The problem with that was visualizing the payout and getting people to understand how payouts work and payout tables um, was a huge challenge. A lot of other games, like Wits and Wagers, I think that's why I like it so much. It's just like, you bet this much, you get paid out three times that, two times that. It's like very simple. Um, but in our game, where we didn't want you to have flexible betting, like you can bet any amount of money at any time, um, we it was harder for us. So eventually we converged on the current system we have, which is bet tokens, which solves all those problems. Uh, basically, they're face down, you bet at the beginning, and then you bet at the end. Um, People have bet slots, so only a certain number of people can bet on any given team, and bets can be death bets. So just because everyone bets on the same team doesn't necessarily mean everyone has the same goals for that team. Two players could have death bets, two players could have real bets, and they might not know it. Everyone might think, oh, we're all death bets, we're all real bets, only one person's a death bet, and kind of figuring that out creates a neat deduction element in the game, even if everyone is betting on the same team. Um, so these, that was a kind of a long rambling rant, but uh, those are kind of some of the problems we ran into and how we structured our, our game to fix them. All right, very cool. So Victoria, what, what about you? What are, what are some challenges that kind of stand out in your mind as things you had to overcome, things that, gosh, you really wanted this thing to work, but you had to cut it in the end or something along those lines? So what's in, like, I think one of the most interesting parts of uh, designing Gladius was the card balance 
and figuring out what ability should be on cards. Because, for example, uh, like when we were working on one of the like the first prototypes of the game, you used to be able to do things that were super broken. Like you could move your opponent's bets, and you could also um, there's a card. It was called like was it, it was like death insurance or whatever. So basically, if a team lost and you had a bet token there, you would still get money if you had placed a card there. Actually, everybody who placed a bet there, if that team lost, you would get money. And so in the early days, the cards were very broken. So we had to figure out, okay, well, at a minimum, how good does a card need to be? And we have to make sure that all of the cards in the game are close enough in level so that way people don't feel like they lost the game just because they drew uh, a bad set of cards. We wanted to make sure that in the game, people could feel like no matter what set of cards you had, you could find a way to win. It's really a puzzle to figure out, hey, how can I use the resources at hand to, uh, to get the biggest payout? And so we had to do a lot of testing to figure out what things felt good to players and felt like within the realm of uh like we mentioned earlier betting games are all about here is an event you are not in the event you're just betting on the event and so we wanted to make sure that the cards didn't create truly feel bad moments where you could do something and it could just ruin somebody for the entire round uh we wanted we wanted cards to be able to do things that would alter the outcome of the events, but not in a way that was insurmountable for the other players. And then I think the other thing that was uh, was a challenge in the beginning was figuring out how to make it so that the like the amount of points that players got at the end of the game were were close together. Uh, one of the challenges with betting games is usually that uh, they're very swingy, right? Like somebody could have like a super low amount, and somebody else could like blow it out of the water and have so much. And when you have that, you have the the problem that I mentioned earlier, which is people uh, check out of the game because they feel like there's no way for them to come back. And so with the, the betting tokens, uh, you have two death bets that are worth uh, two points plus an additional point for each of your opponent's regular bets that you can tank. You have two threes, two fours, and a five. We basically... Like, perhaps there's a mathematical way to figure it out, but we basically just, like, put different numbers based off of our, um, based off of, like, calculations that we ran in our head, and we tested them until it started to feel good, and people used to make the complaint, like, hey, it's always the right move to use these tokens instead of these tokens. We wanted to make it so that way any bet token that you place could be a viable option at any time based off of how you wanted to play in the round. And I think that we were able to find that balance with the with the final numbers that we put on the bet tokens. Very cool. Now, one thing I want to ask you about as far as kind of how you handle it, maybe some you know challenges you ran into, is a lot of betting games run into a, a management, uh, or excuse me, a resource management problem where basically the rich keep getting richer. Poker is like this, right? If you win a bunch of hands and now you have this huge you know stack of chips in front of you, it's easier for you to win long term because, you know, uh, it's going to be harder for other people to catch up. And so how have you kind of managed that mm-hmm. in, in Gladius so that you know, people feel like they still have a chance? They, there's not like a runaway leader, that kind of thing. How have you kind of figured that out? Yeah. So the main resource in the game is, other than your bet tokens, everybody has seven of the same exact ones. You have influence cards. And the starting number of influence cards that you have in your hand varies by the number of players. But most of the time, in order to win a round, if you play more influence cards or if you activate your player power, which you can do by discarding a certain number of influence cards, uh, 
that's usually how you get ahead. So if you win a particular round, that means that you will have, you will probably have fewer cards in the next round and then the next round. And so that is the main way for other players to catch up. Like if you're a player and you're, you're watching a round and you think like, "Uh Oh, I think it's turning out bad. It's time for me to save some cards. That means that in the next round, you have a higher chance of winning because you have more actions that you can take in that round to get your team to win in your favor. All right, very cool. And so I know this game has been in playtesting for a long time. Uh, I know y'all have worked on it for quite a while. And like you said, you played it over a thousand times. And so what are some of the really cool things that you found during playtesting? How has the game changed throughout the playtesting process? Alex, what do you what do you got? So the game changed a lot uh, iteratively through playtesting. We started the game, as Victoria mentioned, with a lot of cards that did wild and crazy things. Um, but the problem with those types of cards is while they are fun to play the first time, uh, they tend to suck a lot of player agency out of the game because if you can play one card that completely swings the round, um, there's no real way you can bet on it that feels good because it just all feels chaotic. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the chaos versus um, being able to understand reasonably what's happening within the game. So a lot of the playtesting was kind of finding that line where players felt like they had enough agency um, to affect the outcome of the events, um, but still it was chaotic enough to make things fun and interesting each new time. One very important piece of feedback that uh, I we received was that when players would play and then the round would end and they would say things like, oh, if I had just played that card there in the second round, I could have taken it. Or, oh, if I had just not played as many cards in the first round and saved them into the third round, um, I probably could have done better in the game. And uh, it's nice to see that players are able to recognize mistakes they make and want to come back and try again um, to play the game. Because uh, as Victoria mentioned, I think the card hand management side of the game is very interesting because uh, sometimes it's correct to leave a round early and let other players play out all their cards and win and then come back in the next round where you have a lot more cards and a lot more power than your opponents and win big in the second round. Um, so in addition to knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them, basically, uh, is is something that we, we thought was very important in our playtesting and something that players really responded well to. So that's really where we tried to refine the game in that direction. Gotcha. Yeah, one of the things I really hate about a game is when I lose and I don't know why and I can't like pinpoint what I did wrong, why my strategy failed, you know, why other people did better than I did. I, I'm probably not going to play that game again if I can't really figure out, well, how should I do things differently? I don't understand it. And so I think that's really cool that, that you've got that going on. Now, Victoria, does anything stand out to you in the playtesting process? Oh, yeah. So related to the playtesting process, one of the things that surprised me is how well Gladius plays uh, at a wide variety of player counts and also with different types of people. Uh, so for example, we initially made the game two to five players and with the old betting system, it was like, it was just, it was a way better game at four and five players. And it was just like, not as fun of a game at two and three players. And so after redesigning the betting system, uh, like the two player game is also really fun. And the three player game is as well. And then the second thing is related to how a variety of different people from different age groups can play. So I went to Game School Con a few weekends ago, which is a convention dedicated to people who homeschool their children and teach them through games, which is like, wow, that sounds super cool, which I did that <laughs> when I grew up. 
And, uh, you know, kids would come up to the table and I wasn't always sure, like, how, how do I teach them how to play this game? Will they be able to understand these rules? And what I found out was that they, they were able to, to pick it up, uh, they're, they're really like sponges and they were able to understand, like read the cards, understand like the different steps and stuff like that. And then on top of that, find synergies between cards and figure out how to do really well. So I, I always feel really great when like a kid or a group of kids come to play Gladius and uh, sometimes they beat other adults. Like at PAX South, that's actually what happened. There was this dad and his daughter. She was like seven or eight years old or something like that. And I was worried, uh-oh, will she be able to play? I don't I haven't tested at um, with like a lot of younger audiences. What ended up happening was she knew what was going on the whole time and she was super tricking other people. And uh, she even fist bumped this other woman who was just playing the game with her because they had both been on a team and they were doing things to help their team win. So that was super hilarious. And even though that girl didn't win, uh, her dad won. She got second place out of the five people playing, which is still really good. Nice. All right, let's get some closing thoughts. Alex, what would you tell somebody who right now, maybe they're thinking about a betting game, they're working on one, what would be your advice to them? I would tell them to definitely look at other betting games, and I would tell them to figure out what is compelling about the, what is compelling about what is being bet on, right? So if the betting if the if the events that are occurring and are unfolding on the table are not compelling then people are not going to be engaged in betting on those events so camel up like the camels stack on each other and they fall over each other and there can be big variants like someone who's in last could come in first someone who's in first could fall into last place like that in itself is super engaging and then building a betting system around that that facilitates that and makes that even more interesting and allows you as a player to interface with that interesting um, mechanic is probably, I would recommend, the best way to make a betting game. Because when we were making Gladius, uh, the thing that we found was most engaging was people liked playing cards and having these secrets and manipulating the, the gladiatorial event in their favor. And we wanted to create a betting system that helped facilitate that play and made that as fun as possible and made those decisions even more interesting than they were, right? Um, so I would say focus a lot on that event that we were talking about and try to build a betting system that props that up and makes that fun and engaging. Gotcha. Well, Victoria, what about you? Do you have any closing thoughts, maybe advice for somebody wanting to make one of these kind of games? I think that, uh, so like one of the things that I found is that it can it can be really intimidating to get into game design. Uh, like the same way it's difficult to get into anything like writing a book or, you know, trying to make content online. Uh, but it really starts with just uh, starting somewhere, no matter how small it is, no matter what the components are, no matter what your budget is, everybody has to start somewhere. And just because you're limited uh, with your resources doesn't mean that you can't make something really awesome. And then on top of that, I think one of the things that has helped us the most was finding a community of other people who like designing games, uh, going to conventions, 
finding different mentors and people to collaborate with, because if we had just stayed at our house and tried designing games, we would not have made it this far. I think that Gladys would have been a worse game if we had stayed in our house and like never went outside. But the ability to connect with all of these different, like brilliant people who play games and design games, that was really what allowed us to accelerate our development and become better game designers and create a better product. Definitely. I completely agree on that. Well, we've been talking about it the you know, most of this episode, but it's on Kickstarter right now. Alex, give me like the uh, two minute elevator pitch for Gladius. Okay, so Gladius is a two to five player award winning game about betting on and rigging the gladiatorial games. In it, you play as one of five cunning Roman spectators who place bets either for teams to win or for teams to lose and then play out a series of influence cards like you could toss in a blade to help people fight, or you could hire hecklers to boo someone so they're less theatric. Um, And you play out these cards, and then you place your bets, and basically the person who makes the most money at the end of three rounds wins the game. Uh, We've been making it for about three years now. It won the Bid Award Game of the Year, the Lucy's People Choice Awards, and was recently featured at the PAX South Indie Showcase, and we're really proud of it, and hope you support us on Kickstarter. Awesome. Well, Victoria, Alex, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with Gladius and the Kickstarter campaign and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?